You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey, this is Reset, and I'm Ariel Dimros. Since we're almost done with 2019, we're bringing you something a little different than the usual Reset episode. This time, we're going to do a look back and a look ahead at some of the big stories in tech. And because Reset is always looking at impact, today on the show, we're going to look at the biggest, most meaningful impacts of technology this year. And we're also going to talk a little bit about what's going to happen next year. By now, though, I'm sure you're wondering, who am I talking about when I use the word we? I mean myself and my two guests who've joined me in the studio today in New York City. My first guest is T.C. Sodek. He's the executive editor of the tech website The Verge and also a former editor of mine back when I used to work for The Verge. T.C. was also my very first D&D dungeon master. Whoa. (laughs) It's true. Hey, Ariel. That's a real thing. Yeah. Uh, My second guest is Adrienne Jeffries. She's an investigative reporter at The Markup, and she also worked with TC and me at The Verge once upon a time. Adrienne has spent years writing about things like blockchain and breaking news about companies like Comcast. She's also the person who has repeatedly told me that she wishes she could get rid of her phone and just own an iPod because then she'd only have to have access to things like email when she's on Wi-Fi. So, hey, guys, uh, what do you think of them intros? Did I get that right? Yeah, basically. Is that the argument for the iPod? <laughs> the argument for the iPod is I've struggled with always being connected and also feeling like I'm always being surveilled. So definitely I would love to throw my phone in the river. Is that an iPod? I feel you. No, I'm on an iPhone 6S still, which feels like an iPod at this point. Oh, so yeah. I'm glad you guys are on the cutting edge of tech. You really you're really making it seem like you're the perfect guests for this right now. Yeah, I'm on an SE and it's it's falling <laughs> apart. It's like the in the its brain is exposed. All right. And does everything I need. I can watch my shows at night through a crack on the screen. It all works still. As long as it works, right? That's all you need. Um so in your mind, which tech story made the biggest impact this year? And what, you know, did it cause some change? Was it was the change good? Was it bad? What stands out for you guys? I thought about this and the two stories that came to mind for me were the incredibly sophisticated surveillance state in Western China with mm-hmm. the surveillance of the Muslim Uyghur population and it's very high tech. The police have apps Um, tourists when they come into that part of the country an app gets installed on their phone there's a lot of sophisticated surveillance happening there in a way that i think it's already spread to other parts of china and i'm sure other states in the future will be able to look at that example and say ah here's how we like do a high-tech version of the holocaust because that's basically what what is happening 
So if you don't know the story, this is um, the Chinese government sending Uyghurs to re-education camps, sterilizing women, preventing people from contacting anyone outside the country, um, monitoring everything on WeChat. You know, WeChat sends the government, um, collects data and sends it, shares it with the government. It's uh, it's pretty bad. It's like everything that we're afraid of when we talk about surveillance and how much we're being monitored. This is the th- the future that we fear is happening right now in Western China. So I think that's a really big one. And there have been a bunch of stories on it. Um, the New York Times has done some great reporting. Wired did some great reporting. Um, and there's also been a lot of uh, audio podcast reporting, too. Yeah. Um, so so and then later this year, also, uh, the Indian government started to do something kind of similar where they cut off the region of Kashmir from the Internet. And uh, it's not... It's not anywhere near as sophisticated as what's going on in Xinjiang, which is the Western China region, but it is um, this like semi-autonomous region or was semi-autonomous. Now the government is saying it's no longer autonomous and uh, they've just cut everyone off from the the internet. And I think it's been like four months. Yeah, it's been a really long time. Yeah. That was actually a big part of 2019 too, just seeing all of these different regimes just shut down the internet. Um, Iran, it happened in Iran, it happened in Kashmir, as you mentioned. Um, there were like, uh, it was threatened in Hong Kong by a politician there. Um, this stuff is, it, it's, it's scary because then you are, you have no way of knowing what's actually going on there. Like we are so dependent on the internet for our information. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that definitely freaked me out this year. Right. And the internet's supposed to be democratizing and it's supposed to make it easier for people to resist. And yet in these Two examples, especially in the China example, it's just like nothing is leaking out, only little drips and pieces. And really, it's a one sided, one sided use of technology to oppress and really not seeing a lot of technology used to push back. It's a pretty dramatic um, swing back in the other direction, considering we started the 2010s with the Arab Spring. Right. Yeah. And all Mm -hmm. of the optimistic Silicon Valley magnates pointed to that immediately as an example of why. The internet was going to dramatically upend repressive regimes around the world and spread mm-hmm. democracy. And, and it turns out, um, especially as we've seen with kind of China, uh, China's backlash on the NBA and Blizzard mm-hmm. this year, mm-hmm. that's not true at all. And in fact, U.S. companies are very easily cowed uh, when when the Chinese government wants them to do something. Yeah, we covered uh, Apple's uh, sort of pulling of an uh, an app related to the Hong Kong protests mm-hmm. on, on an episode on Reset. And we had Neil I on the show, Neil I Patel, who's the editor-in-chief who's of that? The Verge. Never heard of him. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> um, and one of the points that he made is that um, for a long time, these companies were sort of expanding in other markets. So they were able to kind of ignore China, but now they're really having to, if they want to keep growing, they have to really think about what China wants. And that means changing their standards and sort of capitulating to what China wants. And the example that he gave, which I thought was kind of brilliant, was the example of California and how it has stricter standards for car emissions. Because of those stricter standards, car companies are meeting those standards, um, because it's just simpler to meet those standards than to make two different cars based on what state you're in. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is kind of what's going on in some ways with China, meaning that these tech companies are saying, OK, 
we're going to ban this thing everywhere or we're going to follow your Chinese censorship standards everywhere because it's just easier that way. And I think that's kind of like pushing it a little bit. But that is a future that is entirely possible, right? China is extremely powerful. Well, earlier this year, Google announced that it was terminating Dragonfly, the project to build a censored version of the search engine for China. And I think that is tied to another big trend for 2019 that I was wanted to bring up, which is the pushback, internal pushback from white-collar employees, mm-hmm. especially at Google and over at Amazon. Uh, they're, at Amazon, it's more climate-focused, but there's a lot of overlapping issues about, like, no tech for ice. You know, like, I came to Google to work on, like, fun googly things, not, like, a search engine that censors the phrase human rights. Like, right. those employees are pushing back, and I think that is having an impact. And that is uh, that makes me feel optimistic versus all of the other stuff that we've talked about so far. That makes me feel less optimistic. Sort of like Silicon Valley activism? Silicon Valley activism, yeah. I think just the idea that some of these employees are actually demonstrating, are actually walking out on the job, that feels really different from, from 10 years ago. Yep. 10 years ago, everybody was in love with these companies, in love with their employers. They thought it was happy, fun times changing the world. Now they're realizing these companies are really mature. They've got... Contracts with the Defense Department, they're doing other stuff, they're doing facial recognition, and they're feeling like less, they identify less um, with the values of the company. So along those lines, I'm kind of wondering, how do we view big tech today compared to how we viewed big tech 10 years ago? Like, do you think that's changed? Absolutely, I think it's changed. Um, I think I wrote in 2012 a story about how Google had at the time like um, joined the lobbying elite um it had suddenly started to spend as much money lobbying congress as companies like AT&T mm. and Comcast and some of the healthcare industry um and today uh Facebook Google um a lot of these big tech companies are openly ba- asking the government to regulate them which really is you don't see that unless these companies have That's some sort of monopoly bullshit. power, yeah. unless they have some sort of monopoly power where they know the regulation is going to allow them to preserve control over the market. You don't ask for the government to come in and make your life more difficult. So, right, really, like, you ask for regulation when you feel like you are so powerful that regulation might actually block out your competitors. Exactly, um, and so to me, that's that also gets at the story you know that I kind of saw come together this year, which is that I think these largest and most powerful tech companies have proven. That at least for the time being, they're they're immune to regulatory consequences. Um, and then you know, with the Facebook's five billion dollar fine, which was touted as the largest FTC fine in history, which is actually kind of a joke for them, was also a joke for Facebook. Mark Zuckerberg actually became more wealthy the day that fine was announced. And I think uh, the re- you know I think what the government is going to need to fix moving forward is its own like is our investment in the U.S. government. I think one of the reasons they the FTC was unable to go after Facebook is they looked at Facebook and said. How the hell with our $300 million budget are we going to go up against an army of lawyers from Facebook? And that's just one company. So right. there's like a massive underinvestment in um, in the U.S. government's ability to to actually regulate these companies meaningfully right now. It's also just like the government has no idea how to punish these companies in a way that will actually hurt. You You want to give them a fine that will make them think, and that's just not it. So that 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 definitely feels a little bit disappointing. I guess I'm I'm wondering 
Elizabeth Warren is running for president. She wants to break up these big tech companies. Is that the path forward? I don't think it's going to be that easy. I think that is part of it. Part of the equation. Part of the equation, yeah. I'm not sure that breaking them up would solve all the problems. And I don't think she thinks that either. I think it would have to be a little more complicated than just break them all up. But breaking companies apart, especially Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, makes a lot of sense to me. There's been too much consolidation and um, having more competition, I think, would be good. Sometimes large tech companies implode all on their own, though, right? I, the perfect example of this is WeWork. It hasn't fully imploded yet, but it's definitely in progress. And I guess I'm wondering, does it make sense to mention them in a tech year-end wrap-up episode? I'm still not convinced that they count as tech, but a lot of people seem to have been thinking of them as tech, at least for, for the past few years. Uh, I mean, from for The Verge, uh, the WeWork story is perfect. <laughs> it's a comedy. It's a tragedy. Um, and whether or not it's a tech company, I think it has shown a lot of the same just absurd behavior that we've seen come out of other Silicon Valley megalomaniacs. Um, so it's a lot of it is character driven. A lot of it is right? character driven. It's personality. And, 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 like, the story is about Adam Newman, uh, the WeWork founder, saying he wants to live forever and become president of the world while he's hotboxing his private jet to Israel is like... Hilarious, right? It's great. Um, of course, now that he's gone, like there's the sobering reality that he arguably robbed thousands of employees of their livelihoods, and you know he got paid a billion dollars to leave the company, and soon after we work fired thousands of people. It's a really crazy story. I think um, if there, hopefully, if there's a shred of positivity that can come out of it. SoftBank is heavily implicated by WeWork now uh, because they bailed WeWork out. WeWork was a huge part of the SoftBank Vision Fund, um, which basically is like this this big fund that powers a bunch of tech companies around the world. Yeah. Um, so either that Vision Fund is going to tank, <laughs> it's going to be destroyed, <laughs> or uh, they're going to be forced to maybe make some more shrewd investments in companies that actually make money. Okay. So I'm getting from you, at least, TC, that you think this is totally relevant for this year. Do you feel the same way, Adrian? I think it's relevant. I think it was also just a lot of fun. Like every couple of weeks, some new WeWork, dishy WeWork story would come out. Like everybody had a little piece of dishy WeWork stories. Like it was sad, of course, that employees lost their jobs. Yeah. I think there was a period when WeWork was not firing people because it didn't have enough money to pay out severance that it would owe people. Which is really depressing. Especially like, you know, before the holidays. But... I do think that story was kind of a it was like kind of a relief for me versus all of the news and politics and all of the dystopian tech stuff that I look at as part of my job. We were is just like, oh, let's just all laugh at these idiots who are setting <laughs> money on fire. Um, yeah, for for the employees of WeWork, this is a terrible, terrible story. Lots of people also just thought they were going to get a lot of money out of an IPO. And, and that is... Um, that just feels kind of terrible. But, Adrian, I'm glad you brought up politics because— um, Oh, are you? Yes. <laughs> because after the break, we are going to talk about 2020. We're going to look ahead, and that involves talking about politics. So stay tuned. Why do you need State Farm Renters Insurance? Because it helps protect the stuff landlords don't. So there is a skylight in my bedroom. And every once in a while, the skylight will leak 
and it falls on the bed, which is extremely, extremely upsetting. Fortunately, my landlord and my super are great, but if that is not your situation, what you can do is turn to State Farm Renters Insurance. And you can use State Farm Renters Insurance to protect things like your furniture that could get drenched because of a broken pipe. Or protect things like your new laptop, which could get stolen. Honestly, when you add it all up, your stuff's probably worth more than you think. For pennies a day, you can make sure your stuff's protected with State Farm Renters Insurance. And with more than 19,000 agents across the U.S., it's easy to find one close by. Because when it comes to renters insurance, State Farm agents are ready to help. Find an agent or get a quote at statefarm.com. That's statefarm.com. All right, so we're back with TC and Adrian, and we are talking about technology. And right now, we're going to talk about the elections in 2020 because technology happens to be a big component in next year's elections. One aspect of this that is big when it comes to tech is political advertising. Reset uh, has only been around for three months now, two and a half months. And uh, we've already done two episodes on this, one on micro-targeting and uh, then the other one on Twitter banning political ads. Um, Did Twitter do the right thing? Um, I haven't decided whether I'm against all micro-targeting and advertising in principle, but I don't really need to have an answer to that to know that Twitter didn't do the right thing. Because Twitter seldom does the right thing. Um, I think it would be one thing if Twitter actually banned all political advertising, which at least may have been like a nuclear policy that might have ended up with some consistency. But um, instead, like Jack Dorsey fired off a bunch of half-baked tweets and like we have this complicated policy that's going to require sheriffs at Twitter making judgment calls. And that's the worst thing. that. What Twitter- do you mean by judgment calls? Meaning Twitter is going to have to decide what counts as a political ad and what what doesn't. So, um, I mean, like the first time we heard about this policy, it was obvious that every, like lots of stuff that I think people would not want banned, like Planned Parenthood tweeting about their issues or things like that, would could get caught up in this policy. Now it's not clear what exactly counts as a political ad, and Twitter is going to be. Isn't to it making... just when a company pays Twitter to promote a tweet? It or am I be, wrong about that? Um, I, my understanding is it has to be like focused on, or you're you're not allowed to advertise against a uh, piece of legislation or mm. or something specific, or a is, candidate that is actionable, or a candidate, right? So you can have some advertising that is political in nature, but certain things, which I actually think is arguably the worst version. It means right. you're saying you cannot, you can't engage with the actual <laughs> legislation right. that people should be talking about. You can only kind of vaguely come in from the from the edges on an issue. I think it's all kind of PR, all the companies saying they have various policies. They were like, what can we say that we can later hide behind? That's my take on Google, YouTube, Facebook announcements about political advertising. I think we should, I think it would be interesting to try something like a media blackout, which some countries have around elections. Okay. So it would be, it would be interesting if all advertising, like if Twitter turned off all advertising for like two weeks in f- before the election. I think that would. To just give people time to just make up their own minds without having their brains bombarded with random messages from various candidates. And, right. And... Yeah. I think that would be interesting. I mean, I'm not saying that's the answer. I just think that's like a more interesting and potentially helpful solution than what Twitter and Facebook have announced so far. Yeah, I, I agree. And when Jack Dorsey announced this policy, he was subtweeting Mark Zuckerberg, right? right. He, was, yeah. he, he was directly doing it for 
to take a shot at a rival CEO. I also That's think kind that of what are, just like kind of what it felt like to me. It yeah. didn't feel like something that was going to be particularly effective. Although I have kind of changed my tune on on micro targeting when it comes to politics, because I have I have I feel like I have a greater understanding of just how insidious it can be and how how actually per, like it's just everywhere. But I'm glad you brought up Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg, because I'm wondering, should Facebook do anything about this? Like, should they be what should be their next move to sort of maintain the integrity of our elections? Well, just one point on the advertising thing to point out that ads on Facebook and Twitter work kind of fundamentally differently from ads on TV, where like if you had if you have an ad on TV, that means you made a spot that's going to be an ad on Facebook and Twitter. You can promote any post if you have a post that somebody did that is along the lines of what narrative you're trying to push and it does well, you can throw some money at it to boost it up. And that makes I think that makes a lot of difference in the way like people know how to recognize political advertising on television. They don't necessarily they can't necessarily tell when someone is trying to influence the way they're going to vote on Facebook and Twitter. No, I I think that's correct. I think that's true. People don't always notice those promotion tags or they don't they're just not necessarily paying attention to that. Yeah, and I was, I was going to say I think ads are actually one of the smaller parts of the problem with these networks and right. and like Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, all of these communities with this enormous scale are structurally designed and they always have been to spread the most shocking and incendiary stuff. So it's bad as you mentioned Adrian that people can boost stuff like that. But the underlying problem is one of like human emotion and psychology, right? Like if Twitter wants to fix bad things being on Twitter, they would probably have to remove the retweet button right, or right. fundamentally change how Twitter works. And that's not really the conversation that they're having. So I think absolutely we should be looking like way more closely at how these ads work. Um, but I think uh, it's also pretty convenient to be, you know, focusing blame, on blaming ads right now. interference on the ad networks rather than talking about how the, you know, the fundamental structure of the underlying product. I think that, Micro-targeting as a whole is a discussion that we should be having. I also think that the focus on political ads at the same time is a distraction. So we should be talking about micro-targeting, and it's a distraction when it comes to the role that social media has played in elections around the world. And I think that those are two different conversations. And that's my, my fundamental problem with this whole issue is that we keep putting them in the same bucket and talking about them as though they're the same thing, and they're not. Anyway, you also asked what, you know, what should Facebook's next move be to maintain the integrity of our elections? Um, I think they could start by they hiring could a new CEO. The they could turn <laughs> off the website. They turn off the website. That would be number one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just an know. idea. Just saying. <laughs> just put, we could put that on the list. Which sounds outlandish. Um, I haven't had a Facebook <laughs> account since early 2018. And I have I, not missed it. Yeah. yeah, same. I got rid of mine for a while. I got it back for journalism purposes. I almost never post on it and or go on it. Um, but if if I wasn't a journalist, there's no way I'd have a Facebook account right now. Facebook is so lame. So we do a lot of stories on this show about things that are kind of scary when it comes to tech. And... Part of that is just because that's what I find interesting. I'm really interested in democracy. I'm really interested in ethics. Um, so that's that's what what comes up a lot. Um, but I would love to talk about something that you guys are optimistic about, either something from this year or something that you're you're excited about when it comes to, to 2020 that you're looking forward to. Can I say the thing I said already about 
tech workers organizing. It's cheating, I think but yes, it's cheating. Yeah. No, okay. okay. Well, that is one. That thing. is a good thing to be. It's a good thing. About. It makes me feel optimistic. I think that it also seems to be like it might be effective in getting some of these companies to change because they've been able to to attract the best and the brightest for so long. Before Silicon Valley became so lucrative, all the best and the brightest were going to Wall Street. And then Silicon Valley became this like place where you could also make money but be more ethical and, you know, make magical world-changing technology instead of like – Because technology is the solution to everything. (laughs) Right. right? Well, yes. I mean, I think that idea was more widespread and now the sheen of that is um, fading a little bit. Um, But I do think people were attracted to Silicon Valley because – they thought it was aligned with their values, and now that um, that's not so true anymore, um, they're pushing back. And those companies need those workers to survive. They need those engineers and those smart, creative people, and they're going to lose them. And I I don't know where they're going to go. Like, I don't know if there's another industry that will— The nonprofit world? That's where they're all going to go, right? <laughs> right? I'm 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 actually like I'm I'm definitely joking, but also the nonprofit world really needs like coders, like hardcore. Those mm-hmm. websites are terrible. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. I think um, like lots of industries could use that kind of talent. Um, I think it's still too early to say where everybody's ending up. Some people have gone and started think tanks, gone and started like Guillermo Cheslow, who's the YouTube whistleblower who's done a lot of press started some kind of ethical AI thing. Meredith mm-hmm. Whitaker, who mm-hmm. was one of the organizers at Google, started AI Now at NYU. Um, but I th- I'm guessing that not every single employee who <laughs> quits or gets pushed out of these companies is going to be able to start a think tank. So it'll be interesting to see where they end up. I would like to see them stay in those companies and change the culture. Anyway, that's interesting to watch. I think that's correct. How about you, TC? Um, a couple of years ago, my colleague, Addie Robertson, mm-hmm. um, wrote a piece that still just really sticks out of my mind. I think about it all the time. Um, the headline was, uh, edgelords aren't the Internet's cultural leaders. Uh, snowflakes are, <laughs> um, which sounds a little silly. But um, I, I think the thrust of the piece was that um, the nasty stuff that we see online all the time that's being amplified really is not the only thing out there. In fact, mm-hmm. it is often a small portion or a very biased look at what people are up to um addy's a genius addy's a genius genius. i think we can all agree on that um but i I, you know i i've been at the verge for eight years since before we launched and i got into this because i was optimistic it was the early 2010s i was a big gadget nerd i read Gadget all the time every day at work when i should not have been um (laughs) and i still think you know despite all of the crazy dystopian stuff that's out there like you know, Americans putting ring cameras on their doors and surveilling everybody. All of the stuff that I was excited about earlier in the decade is still exciting to me. Um, yeah. The phones are getting faster. The equipment is getting cheaper. The cameras are better. Um, and if you're, if what you want is to go on the internet or um, just get out there and find creative stuff that people are making, all of the tools to make that stuff is only getting better and it's getting more ubiquitous. So, Obviously, it's, you know, a double-edged sword, as with all technology. But um, for me, the Internet is more fun every day. I deleted Facebook. I'm only Mm -hmm. looking at the good subreddits, you know. Mm -hmm. I think you you have to put in some work to find um, the better stuff on the Internet sometimes, but it's definitely out there. TC, you did something that I really 
liked, which is that you brought up like 10 years ago what you were doing when it comes to tech. And 10 years ago, I didn't have a smartphone. I had a dumb phone. Um, And I'm kind of wondering, like, looking back on the last decade in tech, I mean, I mean, gadgets, I mean, companies, legislation, whatever. What comes to mind? What is the thing that you're like, whoa, both good or bad? Um, I think just how like how young people have smartphones now just weirds me out. Mm. Um, Honestly, I just I know this makes me sound old and out of touch, but I would be completely terrified to grow up when everybody in the fifth grade has an iPhone. Um, I'm just, it's just deeply unsettling. The idea that everything's being captured all of the time is more difficult to erase. Um, and we're definitely at the point where there's just no reasonable way to consent to anything. You're just mm-hmm. kind of thrown into this world of yeah. devices and services everywhere that, that are designed to capture as much as possible. Yeah, when but you... again, there are some great TikToks. So like... <laughs> and TikTok... You know, for for you know, it's obviously it's linked to China, and that's uh, something to deeply think about. But also, like TikTok, tends to be a happy place on the internet, and I do appreciate some of its content. TikTok just reminds me of Vine. Mm-hmm. Vine is gone, and that makes me angry. That's fair. I don't like TikTok. Oh, that's that's fair. <laughs> Strong feelings here. No, I when I think about how many like teenagers having smartphones and it being everywhere, and not just teenagers, I mean like young people. Um, I am kind of of two minds. On the one hand, yeah, I I was a really awkward kid. And the idea of everything being documented just makes me feel exhausted because I'm glad that many parts of my childhood were not documented in that way. Me too. I'm glad the first couple of years of my career on the Internet (laughs) have been erased because everybody redesigned their websites and didn't save anything. I'm so happy about that. Um, and then on the flip side of things, the internet was a really, really important part of my teenage years because that's, I mean, this message board no longer exists, so I feel completely comfortable talking about this, but, um, I was a really active poster on a Tegan and Sarah message board when I was very young back when, before they got famous in Canada, people knew about them. And for me, being able to sort of geek out on my like lesbian fandom of this, of this indie band was was a big deal. I got to talk to other queer people on the internet, and that meant a lot to me. Um, and I, I don't know, I feel like if you are alone, if you are different, the internet can be really helpful if you can find an uplifting community, the problems that a lot of people are finding really negative, scary communities instead. Um, but that's about all the time that we have today. Aww. Thank you so much, Adrian Jeffries from The Markup. Thank you. And TC Sodek. From the Verge, you guys were wonderful. I really appreciate you coming here and talking to me about tech. This was really fun. Thanks. My pleasure. I think we should do this again. That sounds I agree. great. Yeah. All right. Cool. You can read TC Sodic's work at TheVerge.com. He mostly edits these days, but he's a wonderful writer too. As for Adrian Jeffries, you can listen to her podcast, Under Understood, on your favorite podcast app. That's Under Understood, all one word. It's great, I love it, and you should check it out. I'm Ariel Zuemros, but you don't have to say it that way. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at ADRS. You can also reach the Reset team by emailing reset at vox.com. We publish episodes three times a week, on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays. So if you haven't already, subscribe to the pod. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or in your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, Go ahead and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. 
It really helps us. Martha Daniel, Skylar Swenson, and Will Reed produce the show. Our engineer is Eric Gomez. Golda Arthur is our executive producer. Liz Kelly Nelson is the editorial director of Vox Podcasts. The mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme music. And Reset is produced in association with Stitcher, and we're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back on Tuesday. Later, nerds. And happy holidays. Support for this show comes from Vanta. Dealing with loads of spreadsheets, juggling different tools, and having to do manual security checks, it can be a headache to keep up with today's compliance and security programs. Vanta is the trust management platform that wants to simplify things and bring all your trust-building efforts under one roof, making growth smoother for your whole organization. Vanta lets you automate up to 90% of compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Strengthen security posture and reduce third-party risk. Get $1,000 off Vanta when you go to vanta.com slash vox. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash vox for $1,000 off Vanta.